Well, let me begin by talking about one of the most uh, venerated images in all of Western society. It's on the screens behind me. It's the image that you're probably all familiar with. It is the image of Lady Justice. Now, while this image has obviously differed from culture to culture over the years, since at least the 15th century, Lady Justice has had shared three symbols in common, and it's the symbols that we kind of know her by now. Uh, it is a symbol of the sword, the scale, and the blindfold. Um, if you know anything about Lady Justice, the sword obviously is the symbol that shows that Lady Justice has the power to defend the innocent or defeat the guilty. The scale symbolizes that Lady Justice has the ability to weigh out in fairness between guilt and innocence. And then the blindfold, obviously, is that Lady Justice is blind to all physical appearances, that she does not judge based on things that she can see, but on more weightier matters. The idea being that justice will always be objective and fair. Now, while not all cultures, including our own, live up to the symbol of what Lady Justice stands for, we can truly be grateful that at least our cultures are aspiring to that ideal. And you don't have to be a religious or a Christian or a church-going individual to appreciate the fact, the, the common good reality, that we have cultures that aspire to some ideal of justice. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, however, this theme of justice is predominant, especially as we get into the prophetic literature. Many of the prophets decried the, the abuse of authority and the oppression of the weak and the needy, and so justice is a huge theme. Treating people fairly, treating people equitably is a component, a basic component of justice. All these are tied into these ideas of, of what's right and what's wrong, morality. They all kind of come together. Um, the Bible teaches clearly that human beings uniquely have these kinds of uh, rights. We treat people with fairness. We treat people with equity. We, we, ex we establish justice because there's something unique about human beings. The Bible says it's that we have the Imago Dei, the image of God. And because of that reality, human beings, apart from every other creation, has unique and certain characteristics and rights, right? This is why we, we are fine with gassing termites, but not so fine with gassing people. There's something unique about humanity that even the forefathers, when we founded this country, if you're familiar with these kind of founding documents, said that man has inalienable, what's that mean? Inalienable means they're not alien rights. They're not things that we or governments have given to people. They are part of who they are in their essence. It's inalienable that these rights were bestowed and the founding fathers recognized by their creator. And so, that, that, that is a kind of the foundational, as our founding fathers thought about how we're going to establish government, that government doesn't create rights. Governments recognize the rights that are already inherent in being made in the image of God. Not all governments view that, but ours certainly was founded on that. They say, well, that's great, but what does that have to do with James chapter 2? Well, James chapter 2, as you recall, is an expansion of, of basically when James started in chapter 1, verse 19, talking about what it means to live out God's Word. You see, James understands how all these things are related. James' argument is justice fails, or more to the text, partiality or favoritism flourishes when people do not reflect the character of God. You see, James's primary thesis in his book 
is that when people are divided in their allegiance and commitment to God, inevitably they're going to be divided in their allegiance and commitment to every other good thing, including treating people fairly and justly. So right out of the gate, uh, what I want to do is give you the breakdown of this passage. I normally don't do this, but because this is a really dense section of Scripture, and James makes so many arguments, I want to be able to have you see it on the screen to at least be able to see at a 10,000-foot level the way James is dealing with this. Essentially, it's, it's, it's really 13 verses. Let's just try to make one point, and it's right there in verse 1. Here's the command. Show no favoritism. Be like God is. God is not broken up into parts and treats people in different parts. God is a coherent whole and treats everyone and responds to everyone in the same kind of way. You ought to be doing the same thing. Show no favoritism. And then in verses 2 and 4, he gives an example that they're probably familiar with, something that probably took place in their midst, an example of the rich man and the poor man. And then, uh, to help us really understand his points, he gives us three more arguments that back up his command in verse 1. So, in verses 5 through 6, he's going to give us a biblical argument. Here's why, this is what, the, this is what our theological worldview teaches us how we should live. And then, verses 6 and 7, he gives just a pragmatic argument just of just common sense. And then in verses 8 through 13, he's going to give a foundational argument, as you can see in the outline. This is basically a 10-point sermon. Um, He gives three more reasons of what I call the defeater argument or the foundational argument. It's the royal law. In verses 8 and 9, favoritism, showing partiality, not treating people with equity, violating the principles of justice, violates the royal law itself. And then verses 10 and 11, and and the royal law is one indivisible whole. You can't cherry pick what you like about Scripture and what you don't and only obey those things and think it's okay. And then finally, he concludes with this kind of actually setting us up for next week, how mercy triumphs over judgment, how mercy needs to transform the way we live. Now, um, I hope that was enough time to at least write down some of that. You actually don't absolutely need to write this down because we're going to walk through it. Again, this is kind of the engine under the hood. I normally don't show you this because it's a lot of material, but I want you to see that, that James was really thinking through when he's talking to people. And this is much of what the Bible is, especially the New Testament epistles. Uh, they're unlike the Old Testament narratives that's recording history. Oftentimes in the epistles, these writers are making careful arguments for biblical living, and I kind of want to show you how they structure it. So there's a lot to get through, so let's try and jump in. And there's one more comment. Typically, uh, the introductions tend to be carrying the lion's share of the content that we're going to talk about. Today, it's a little bit different. It's actually going to be in the middle. So you're going to see that the beginning and end, we're going to kind of fly through and spend some time in the middle. So, for example, verse 1, the simple command, show no favoritism. It's pretty straightforward. You really can't expound on that much more than it needs to be said. You don't show favoritism. The, the uh, original language, Greek, Koine Greek that this was written in, the translation literally is, receive no one's face. That, that's the, the actual text behind what we say is partiality or translated favoritism. Receive no one's face. In other words, be blind to what this physical appearance is of the individual in front of you. Be blind to the superficial realities or the superficial metrics we use to measure one another by. You should not see those things. You don't receive the individual's face. And then James provides an example probably of what actually took place in this community of believers in verses 2 through 4, an example of a rich man and a poor man. 
Now, as I said, James is probably alluding to something that they would have all been pretty familiar with. Now, if you heard Bill read that, and in your mind, you were thinking of a kind of a, a typical weekly church service, and everyone's kind of sitting down, and here comes a very wealthy individual with gold rings on and a nice outfit, and the ushers run up to him and say, hey, you have the primo spot here, and then if you saw a poor man shabbily dressed, and they said, oh, you can go sit in the cry room, no one's there, that, if that's what you're thinking, that's not the, the context set up here. Actually, this is probably not at all a weekly Sunday morning church service that we might assume. We know that because James in verse 2 uses a word. uh, He doesn't use the word for church. Typically, when we read assembly in the New Testament, it's ecclesia. Uh, James doesn't use that word here. He's talking about the synagogue. And the synagogue was used not only for the Jewish worship service, but for community affairs and uh, judicial hearings. So what James is actually envisioning here is a kind of Christian court where, similar in what Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you recall, uh, in the Corinthian church, these brothers or sisters were having disputes and they couldn't work it out, so they were going to the magistrates and to the law and to the the people outside the church, and and Paul was saying, you are going before the courts bringing shame upon the name of Christ. Cannot you work these things out? Is there no one mature amongst you that can resolve the fights? Don't you know that one day we will judge angels, yet you cannot decide amongst yourself, right? You remember that from Paul. So what's happening here is along, along the lines of what Paul is envisioning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's two people in the church, two people, members of the community. They can't see eye to eye, and so they go to the church to have their case heard so that the church can decide guilt or innocence and, and how they're going to move forward. So, we, the context provides for us is this judicial setting. The language tells us this is probably not a church. And then furthermore, um, churches in the first century mostly were house churches. So, you really didn't need ushers to help you find a seat. You walked in the living room, oh, here's a spot, I'm going to sit down, right? So, I just want to show you that, and here's why. Not that it can't be a church setting, but what James is trying to show is that the problem amongst these people is way more pervasive than the rich get to sit in the nice seats and the poor sit in the nosebleeds. There's a systemic division, a systemic differentiation between people that's happening through the community. And James uses a judicial context to show that even on Sunday, everyone kind of knows how you're supposed to behave, right? Let's, let's be honest. We have that uh, cultivated Christian civility. We know how to put the face on. How are you doing? Praise the Lord, brother. I'm glad to be at church. It does, you know, we just know these routines. We step into them. And James is showing, look, this is a situation that's out of that context, People are having problems, and so he's showing it in a much more comprehensive environment of their lives. So here we have some brothers who cannot get along, and the church is gathered to decide guilt or innocence, what they should do, and unfortunately, they're seeing the wealthy man saying, well, hey, this guy could help us out. This is really good. We need benefactors. So, so they're fawning all over this man, and the poor man is being treated poorly. And the verse to zero in on on that example is actually verse 4. James writes, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The word there about becoming, making distinctions is the same word that James uses twice 
in chapter 1, verse 6. Now, I want you to go back to chapter 1, verse 6 to read how James uses the word there. Chapter 1, verse 6, James says this, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, there it is, for the one who doubts, there it is again, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So in chapter 1, it's translated as doubts, and translated, in chapter 2, it's translated as making distinctions. It's the same Greek word, it's just being translated a little bit differently. You recall in chapter 1, James is saying, look, the one who's divided and, and not sure on who God is and is not settled on whether or not God can be trusted, they're, they're like the wave tossed to and fro from the sea. They can't expect to receive anything from God because they're all over the place. So now James, using the same word in chapter 2, verse 4, is connecting that the, the person who's divided in their trust of God can't receive from God, but the same kind of heart leads to this kind of behavior where they're dividing amongst themselves. In other words, the problem they're dealing with, as it was in chapter 1 fundamentally, is that they are discriminating and making divisions because in their heart, they're still divided about who they think God is. Friends, God is a whole. He doesn't put on His wrath hat when things go bad and then put on His joy hat when things are happy. That's not how He works. You recall when we did our series on the attributes of God, all of God's attributes, His wrath, His holiness, His justice, His compassion, His mercy, His grace, His joy, all these work, they're, uh, they're functioning maximally at all times in complete coherence and no contradiction. He's not parceled up like we are sometimes. He has all, and we don't know how all these things work in him, but that's what it is to be God. He functions coherently this way. And James is saying, look, because you're divided about who God is, you're divided about the way you treat each other. You are not reflecting the character of God who himself shows no favorites. He welcomes all who come to him. And you are not reflecting his character and it's evident by the fact that you're discriminating against one another. So James's point, as it was in chapter 1, is the problem of humanity is a divided heart. The problems of justice in our contemporary society is not merely that we're different ethnically or socially or economically. The problems are much deeper. James said our allegiance to God is not right resulting in the fact that our allegiance to one another will not be right as well. Friends, the, the Bible never makes or sees the problems of society as so simple as saying, here's the, the one problem. We're different ethnically. Or here's the problem. We're different, different financially. Or here's the problem. We're different uh, educationally or intellectually. The Bible never is so reductionistic in understanding the complexities of this world. The problem goes much, much deeper. The reason you're divided amongst yourselves and you divide along these kind of social, economic, intellectual lines is because you are divided in your allegiance toward God Himself. Now, that's James is. That's his subtext. That's, that's the driving point he's getting at. Not just here, but he's made that point in chapter 1. He's going to continue to make that point. And he's going to give three arguments to make the case. So the first one is the biblical argument, verses 5 through 6. 
James says, doesn't God choose the poor? Now, to be clear, this isn't a, a, a passage that is teaching that just because someone's economically disadvantaged, that they're inherently more righteous. That's not what it's teaching. I know you know many poor people who are ungodly, right? Just as much as I know many, many wealthy people who are godly. The, the, the thing that James is driving at is that doesn't God always upend the value systems of our world to accomplish His purposes? That's what James is getting at. He says, haven't you seen this, that God always chooses the poor? God always upends our value system to show us it's not our ability or our wisdom or our intellect that gets us out of the problem. He always does this so that He gets the glory. Now, now keep your finger in James. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, this isn't James writing. It's Paul writing to the Corinthian church. But it's the same point. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then finally, at the end of verse 31, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So James is saying, look, in light of this, in light of that you know this, don't see the world the way the world sees the world. See the world the way God sees the world. Get that? James is saying, do not see the world through the value systems that you are accustomed to because you're not going to see reality. You have to see the world the way God sees the world. By the way, if you are a Christian, God saw your poverty and He saw your need and gave you favor still as well as eternal inheritance in Christ. You were the poor that God made rich in Christ, is James's implication. Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten that God chooses the poor, which was you, to become the inheritor of eternal riches with His Son? So why do you now act this way, is the biblical argument. Then he gives them a rational argument in verses uh, 6 and 7. Now, for us in our, our modern culture, this is going to sound so unbelievable, but Roman law at this time period, Roman law explicitly favored the wealthy to the disadvantage of the poor. As a matter of fact, if you were of a poor economic class, according to Roman law, you could not bring a suit against someone in a higher economic class. You could not even bring them to court because Roman law assumed that your entire motivation was purely economic self-interest and there was no merit to your case. So if you were poorer than somebody, you couldn't even bring them to court. That didn't work the other way though, and James makes that point. The rich could bring the poor to court because it wasn't economic self-interest according to Roman law. Furthermore, Roman law prescribed harsher punishments for the poor than they did the rich. So, so James is astounded that they're fawning all over this individual as they're trying to decide the rightness or wrongness of what's going on. 
Just, I, I to him, it's mind-blowing. So, so James makes a biblical argument, which is a, a theological in nature. Do you not understand God's economy? This is how God works. Then he makes a rational argument, which is pragmatic in nature. Why in the world are you doing something that makes no sense? Have you forgotten that it's the wealthy that drag you into court and oppress you? Why then are you treating this man, making these distinctions? And then he gives what I call the defeater argument in verses 8 through 13. And this is the foundational. This is foundational in nature and it's found in verses 8 and 9. So James writes this, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Friends, the foundation for not showing partiality, the foundation for treating people with equality, the foundation for justice is found in the law of God. Now, what James means by the royal law is the Old Testament as reinterpreted by the life and light of what Jesus Christ Himself did. It is not an endorsement of the Old Testament. It is not an endorsement of Torah and going back to living under the Old Testament law per se. That's not what James is saying. But it's now seen in the light and life of Jesus Christ. And he alludes to it in verse 8 by quoting a passage everyone's pretty familiar with, right? But let me read it explicitly to you. Keep your finger in James, and we're going to go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, uh, this is where the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, and they ask Him, which is the greatest of all the laws? Now, remember, God gave how many commandments? Ten, Exodus 20. The Jews, uh, for one reason or another, made those ten, 615, okay? Uh, And it's just crazy. And so, they are trying to test how well this this peasant, uneducated kind of carpenter's son knows the law, which is the best of the 615. And so, this is the context of the conversation. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So while the Old Testament law is not done away with, because Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, Matthew 5.17, He says, I came to fulfill the law, but the law is no longer the metric that is used to establish our standing before God. There's no bean counting. Did you do all this and this and this? Let's see how it weighs out. That's not how it works. The law no longer is the metric that is used to judge my standing before God. What matters according to Jesus is that there is a love for God and a love for humanity. And it's not just a generic love for God or a generic love for humanity. You notice the way he qualified it. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Again, this doesn't mean that the Old Testament and the law isn't important. It simply means it finds its culmination in the life and work of Jesus Christ. So we may be thankful. Okay, you, it was 10. They made it 615. You brought it down to two. But the reality is we still can't even do those two, can we? 
But that's why Jesus did it for us. Jesus did it for us, and that's what it means to fulfill and abide by the royal law as interpreted by Jesus Christ. Because whoever does those two things, loves God with everything they got, loves people like themselves, that's the law. That was the point of the law in the first place. And this is why the very foundation of justice in our society is standing on shaky ground. Because culturally, we are removing the foundations on which it stands. Now, we all appreciate individuals, or we all appreciate justice, but any individual or society that rejects the notions of God will have an almost impossible time justifying their notions of justice or morality or any of these kinds of concepts like fair treatment of others. It's not hard to expose this problem in our culture. You can do it with one question. Here it is. Why? Why should I, or anyone for that matter, why should I or anyone care about the rights of anyone else or want to reform the world and make it a better place? Every one of us has to be able to answer that question. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you consider yourself religious or not, every human being who's a part of some kind of pluralistic, liberal, democratic society that wants it to flourish has to be able to answer that question. Why should we care about justice? Now, if you try to answer that question without appealing to God or some kind of moral order or some outside moral source, you're going to run into two problems, inevitably. The first is the problem of moral motivation. Why should we do justice? Why should we care for the poor? Why should we treat people fairly and equally? The answer is, according to the Bible, is because of God's agape love given to us in Christ. If you are a Christian, you are a recipient of unmerited grace and astounding love that you did not deserve, you did not earn it, but was freely given to you. And as a response to that, if that love of God has transformed you, we cannot but help want to extend that to others. We love God, Matthew 22, 37, because God first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. And we as recipients of that love go, my gosh, I want other people to understand this is possible. That's the motivation for the Christian. What is the motivation for the individual or society that denies God? What is the motivation? What is the moral motivation for someone who denies God? Now, let me be clear. You can't say it's just the right thing to do because that is the job that you're tasked with explaining. Why is it right to care for the poor and marginalized? Right? So you can't simply say that's just the right thing to do because that's the job you have to do. You have to explain why it's right after all. You simply can't assume the very question you have to answer in your response. That's not how this works. Now, someone might say, okay, well, um, I feel like this is something that we need to do. I feel justice is important. Okay, that's legitimate. Feelings move us, right? So, someone says, I feel that we should treat people fairly. I feel that justice is important. But here's a problem with that. What happens when you don't feel like doing what is right any longer? What happens when you face resistance or it begins to cost you socially or economically? 
What happens when the feeling is simply not there anymore? Does justice and the the well-being of others as an issue simply disappear along with your feelings? It's far too subjective to say my moral motivation in life is how I feel about it because your feelings change. Ask any high school student that's dating, right? Here's another one. Another motivation can be uh, the anger I feel over injustice. When I look around this world, I see all kinds of injustice. I see oppression or racism or sexism, and and, and I'm just moved to action, so I have to act, okay? We see some of this in our culture, don't we? And you would be foolish to see an injustice and not become angry and want to do something about it. But here's the problem. If anger over injustice is your motivation, you will inevitably have to demonize one group of people to help another group out. And you know what? Life is way too complex for that to happen. Life is way too complex to simply say, these kinds of people, they're the wrong kinds of people, they're always wrong, and these kinds of people are always right and innocent and need to be protected. Human people, we are not that way. We are not so black and white. You're never going to find a group of people, regardless of their situation, circumstance, ethnicity, education, that is entirely pure and righteous and needing of help and one that's entirely evil and needs to be gotten rid of. But if anger over injustice is your motivation, you have to demonize one to help another inevitably. And we are seeing that all over our culture. So when you see anger over injustice, if that's the motivation, it oftentimes just brings another kind of injustice in the other direction, doesn't it? I um, was studying for my dissertation. I did a lot of reading of a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, He was a French philosopher, and this is what he said. He wrote about the 50s, so somewhat of a contemporary. He said, benevolence and social justice, social justice activism in modern society is largely powered by hatred and contempt for others. Oftentimes, people responding to the injustices they see around them create more injustices to deal with. Martin Luther King Jr. said famously in his letters to the Birmingham jail, injustice everywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Injustice to the poor man, to the black man, the rich man, or the white man is injustice to every man. If your mere anger over injustice is your source and foundation for moral motivation, it will cause more injustice and continue the problem. So our feelings and anger over injustice is not a sure motivation for morality and justice. For the Christian, Agape love does not create more injustices. Agape love does not end because we are not the source of it. Second problem, though, is a problem of moral obligation. Now, some are going to say, hey, uh, I think you're being heavy-handed. God isn't necessary for morality to exist. God isn't necessary for justice to exist. There are plenty of moral individuals who live with integrity and concern for the rights and well-being of others. There are plenty of moral individuals that have no religious affiliation that fight for justice. This is the kind of arguments that's been coming out recently in books like uh, Good Without God, What a Billion Non-Religious People Do Believe, and Atheist Mind, Humanist Heart. Friends, let me say this. When secular people claim that moral behavior uh, like justice is possible without God, they are certainly right. 
me say that again. When secular people, non-religious people claim that moral behavior is possible without God, they are absolutely right. We all know non-religious people who are concerned about the issues that matter, who live with integrity, are well-intentioned, and are moral. For that, as Christians, we should be thankful for. We should rejoice that it's just not a religious people that view justice correctly. This is a common grace good. Now, that being said, while moral feelings and moral behavior are possible without God, how can there be any sense of moral obligation without God? I grant you can feel this way. I grant you can act this way, and that's good. But without God, how can there be any sense of moral obligation? On what grounds can you say you ought to seek justice? You ought to seek the well-being of all people. Or you ought to be concerned about the environment. Or on what grounds can you tell someone you should stop doing this even if you feel like doing this? Furthermore, friends, on what grounds can one government say to another, you ought to promote women's rights or you should not persecute minorities or political or ethnic minorities? On what grounds can they oblige one country to another or one individual to another? My friends, the only way the Bible tells us we can get from moral feelings to moral obligations is to have some kind of moral source or norm of right and wrong that is outside of the individual and cultures and societies that validates or invalidates, that supports or challenges our own inward moral feelings. Without that standard, Scripture is very clear, without this kind of moral standard outside of us, you can feel something is wrong, but you have to admit, in reality, it actually isn't wrong. You just feel differently about it. You can feel that genocide is wrong, but if there's no standard that condemns that kind of action, you can't actually say it's wrong because you just feel differently about it than the person feels who's committing it. That's the world you have to abide by if there's no kind of standard or law outside of that culture or individual that judges them. Again, Nietzsche, and he wasn't a Christian. He said this, Without a moral source outside the self, the only way to resolve these inevitable conflicts between moral ideals and vision is to exercise power. Might makes right simply because it can. Friends, when a society or an individual jettisons all sense of accountability or some kind of demand or law above them, all of life becomes a power play so that you can have the ability to force your desire on someone else. That is not the kind of society or culture that human beings are going to flourish in. And James says, this is not how life is supposed to be. He makes it very clear that the royal law itself, and for us as Americans, we don't understand the kind of royalty concept, but that's the edict of the king. You don't get to like redecide this. You don't get to vote, vote it down. You don't get to renege it. The king gives an edict and you submit to it. And James says the royal law cannot be violated. You cannot treat people this way because the royal law commands otherwise. And it's an edict of the king. Doesn't matter how you feel about it or even if you like it, 
you treat everyone equitably. You treat everyone without favoritism. You don't look at their appearances, but you look at the heart as much as you can like God does. Then verse 10 and 11, James makes a second point regarding this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, is the one that also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor, transgressor of the law. And like the character of God, His commands are an indivisible whole. You can't pick and choose what you like. Oh, I love the stuff about Jesus in Matthew and Luke. But Paul, man, he's kind of a party pooper. He's a holy living and stuff. I don't like what he has to say. You can't do that any more than you could go into an antique store and break the handle off of a $5,000 Ming vase and say, well, I only broke the handle. I don't have to pay the whole thing. You wouldn't do that. Or if you were eating a salad at 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 an outback or something and you found a cockroach on a lettuce, you wouldn't take the one lettuce and throw it out and keep eating the salad, would you? Don't raise your hand if you would. You send the whole thing back. So if we understand salad to be an indivisible whole, how much more God's commands And that's the point James is getting at. You can't cherry pick. You may like certain things about God's commands because they happen to agree with your moral point of view. But when you're confronted with things that challenges you, you don't get to cherry pick those out. You need to trust that you need to ask for the wisdom that this is what's right and learn to submit to that. And you will see the benefit thereafter is James's argument. We need to be like God and in reflecting Him, who is an integrated whole, we need to be an integrated whole. We need to conclude, but let me just ask this. How did God treat you when you were poor? When you stood accused, and unlike many of James's original hearers, the, those original poor, you in fact were guilty. Your spiritual poverty was reflective of the state of your soul. We had no defense The evidence was overwhelming. We were guilty, and if the judge was going to be just, his only option was to condemn us. But what happened? You know, Christ made himself poor so we could be rich. Christ took our accusations upon himself and the burden of our guilt so that we could be acquitted. God treated us with his favor. So James reminds us of this great truth in verse 12. He says to them, so keep on acting, keep on speaking, keep on keeping on doing the right thing, living under this law of liberty, again, the law of Christ that now you are able to live. And he ends by putting a twist on one of Jesus' sayings in the Beatitudes. Uh, he, He actually reverses the order. Jesus says, show mercy to receive mercy. And James says, if you don't show mercy, you're not going to receive mercy. He reverses it for effect. But he ends by saying, mercy triumphs over judgment to set us up for the next section where he's talking all about our faith being shown through the way we live and not just the things we say. And he wants them to remember mercy is what triumphs over judgment and the way we live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word, uh, your word in James, how just these 13 verses that we just looked at really briefly for 40 minutes, we could look at for another hour. Lord, our prayer is that we would not be divided in our hearts about who you are so that we would not be divided about our brothers and sisters. Lord, what this world needs 
is communities of people who are an integrated whole reflecting the character of God. Father, we know we fail that every day. And so we thank You for the grace that You give to us in Christ, Lord, so that we can love You and our neighbor with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because You supply what is lacking in our faith. Holy Spirit, we ask that You make this what we have learned a reality in our lives this week, and we thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.